0: So when it comes to something like addiction, you know there's many different forms of how we define that. There's many different forms of how we look at something uh, like addiction, whether it's substance, whether it's social media, whether it's pornography. And we have a lot of men that come into our space that are that are struggling with exactly that with porn addictions of various forms and I'm curious to get your take on how you define addiction and is there a difference necessarily between something like substance abuse or social media or, you know, porn or sex addiction when it comes to what's happening neurologically or within the body?
1: Yeah. So there are lots of different definitions of addiction, but they all come down to basically the same thing, which is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Shorthand way to remember the DSM criteria for that is the three Cs, control, compulsion, and consequences. Another definition of addiction that that I like, though, that's a little unorthodox, but is relevant for the book is addiction is the things we do that we lie about.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Can you say more about that? I feel like that almost like hear my audience being like, oof. <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> oof moments. Uh-huh. Yeah. The things yeah. we lie about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, one of the cardinal features of addiction is this, what we call the double life, where we're living our regular lives, but then on the side we have this other life that is not known to the important people in our lives. And on some level, even hidden from ourselves through this process we call denial, which one of my patients said is an acronym that stands for don't even know I am lying. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it really does represent the ways in which we can have this divided brain where we're living out certain behaviors, but not even acknowledging to ourselves that they're happening They're in this kind of dream like waking dream-like place in our minds.
0: and is there like is there some sort of advantage to that kind of behavior? is there is there like an evolutionary advantage to that? Is there a biochemical benefit to that? because it seems like that's such a prevalent thing that has emerged within our species.
1: Our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasurable stimuli and avoid painful ones. And it's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever present danger. So it makes a lot of sense that we would be wired this way. The problem is that we've now created a world of overwhelming abundance. So what was once an adaptive mechanism has become our Achilles heel. I would say also that, in my opinion, People with severe addiction are people who in another time and place would have been the most adapted among us because they would have been the ones willing to search longer and further to find that oasis in the desert. But now those individuals may be the most vulnerable in our modern society because of their predilection for addiction to these intoxicating stimuli.
0: Yeah, interesting. And so so in many ways, the the mechanism has always been there. However, the environment that we found ourselves in has altered and changed to such a degree where it's maybe not as useful as it used to be.
1: That's right. Dopamine Nation is essentially the story of how our primitive brains are not made for our modern environment.
0: Interesting, okay. Yeah, you talk a lot about this dichotomy between the pursuit of pleasure and the act of avoidance of pain and the relationship between the two, Can you just say a little bit more, maybe we can start to go into this, but can you say a little bit of of what's actually happening in the brain when we're pursuing pleasure and trying to avoid pain? Because those are two sort of different systems that are at play, if if my understanding is correct.
1: Yeah. So one of the most interesting discoveries in the field of neuroscience in the last 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. And by that, I mean that they are processed in the same parts of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance so when we do something pleasurable our balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure we get a little release of dopamine our reward neurotransmitter in the brain and then we feel good but one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level it doesn't want to be tipped to pleasure or pain for very long so no sooner has that happened than our brains will downregulate our own dopamine transmission and our own dopamine production in order to level the balance again. But the brain intentionally overshoots that in order to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. And I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the thing is the gremlins like it on the balance so they stay until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain and that's the come down or the after effect or the hangover. Now if we wait long enough, The gremlins hop off, that feeling passes, and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But if we repeat that behavior again and again, we eventually end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they fill this whole room. We change our set point, and we essentially end up with a balance chronically tilted to the side of pain. That means we have to continue to use our drug just to feel normal, and when we're not using it, we're in a state of withdrawal, craving, irritability, depression, anxiety, and nothing else is enjoyable.
0: Interesting. And so I'm curious to get your take on how addictions are formed. And what I hear you saying is that in some ways is really spurred out of this pursuit of more pleasure where we can become you know, sort of hooked or or have an addictive behavior form or the avoidance of, of some form of pain that manifests that can create the addiction. And I think when people think of addiction they, you know, they see or, or think of the normal sort of causes, right? That somebody experienced some form of traumatic or adverse event and it created something that people needed to subside the pain from or avoid or escape or or numb or deal with and that's how the addiction manifested. I'm curious from your perspective, is there always a causality? Because I think I've seen addicts that whether it's porn or sex or, or drugs or, you know, even things like social media, where they don't think that there is any form of cause, that there's nothing that sort of transpired before that, that, that sort of can be labeled as the reason why they're an addict?
1: Yeah. So this is a really important question because it is true that trauma or co-occurring mental illness or other experiences can drive us toward using substances and so in some ways be responsible for the creation of our addiction. But it's also true that we can have the perfect life and still get addicted, that there can in fact be nothing behind the addiction except for the addiction itself. And I would also emphasize that sometimes spending too much time trying to figure out why we're addicted is not a worthwhile endeavor. Because even when we discover what that underlying reason may be, once we become addicted, it's a very physiologic, biological phenomenon. And what we need to do is engage in behaviors to get well from that addiction. So although I certainly acknowledge the role of trauma, for example, in the possible etiology of addiction in some cases, I think that the Role of trauma can be overstated, and that on some level people need to realize that uh, addiction can just be caused by being exposed and having access to highly addictive stimuli. And I emphasize again and again that in our modern world, it is the increased access, the almost ubiquitous access to these drugified experiences and substances, that makes us all vulnerable to addiction.
0: Yeah, I remember. A couple of years ago, speaking at a an all boys school, it was like this uh, Catholic college college prep military school, all boys school, and was like 650 boys. And I was doing some research leading up into this of, of talking to the boys because they wanted me to come in and talk about masculinity and and they wanted me to address porn. And I was like, wow, that's you know really offloading <laughs> some responsibility onto me. Yeah, right?
1: wow. That was and,
0: and but anyway, in in my in my research, I found that a lot of young boys, a lot of young men, are are coming into finding pornographic materials between the age of eight and eleven now. And I thought to myself, what a what a challenging thing to find at that age, you know, especially if you've never had anyone talk to you about sex, talk to you about what's happening in the body, you know, none of those things. And so, in the school, I just did an exercise. I had a I had a couple slides and, and at one point this slide, you know, went this the screen that was up there, it said porn on the background. And you know, all the boys, six hundred and fifty boys and they are still, you know, kind of making noise and wrestling around. And I said, Okay, the teachers are all gonna turn their back. And so all the teachers were in the rafters and I said, All the teachers turn your back and the parents turn your backs. <laughs> and so they all turned their they all turned their backs and turned around. And I said, All right, all right, guys, raise your hands if you've watched porn. And these guys were, from, you know, these boys were from grade four all the way up to grade 12. And I would say probably about 95% of those boys put their hands up and I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I was really shocked, you know. So later on that night, I had a conversation with the parents of not all the boys, but whoever wanted to show up. And we talked about engaging that conversation. So I think what you're saying is right, is that we have access to things that we've never had to experience before, you know, right. things like social media that are literally designed to try and capture our attention. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I can't find, I can't seem to help myself, but ask like, how do we begin to regulate our systems, you know, our, our, our brains, our nervous systems in a world that is designed to hook us in, in some ways. So I don't necessarily think that we need to talk about strategies specifically but if you want to just speak to that briefly before we go back into what we were talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean I think this is the very premise of dopamine nation that that acknowledging that we are living in this drugified world with 24/7 access to these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that children from a very young age have access to drugs that would have been unimaginable even a generation ago, and that that we have to take on this very real conversation about what this means about our development, our behavior, our values. You know, how are we going to navigate this really unprecedented time in human history?
0: So, I guess to better understand this, that we can have a, a better conversation around you know this the drugified you know, whether that's social media or or things like pornography and what's happening. Can you just give us a, a bit of a basic understanding of the neurochemistry of addiction and what's actually taking place within us when we are experiencing a, an addictive behavior?
1: Sure. So basically the slide into addiction is when our pleasure pain balance gets weighted to the side of pain, such that we then have compulsive urges to repeat the behavior and uh, not just to get pleasure but but merely to uh, regain homeostasis. So I think that that's the key piece. We start out using for fun or to solve a problem but we get to a point where we're using because we're using, right? We get caught up in that vicious cycle of not being able to put it away because our physiology has adapted to its constant presence. And for people who have no personal or family exposure or experience to addiction, I often um, suggest the experiment of just putting your smartphone away for 24 hours. And if you're willing and able to do that, noticing how preoccupied you are, especially in the first 12 hours, thinking about where your phone is, who might have contacted you, what you might be missing, why it's so important to not do the experiment and instead check the phone again, because it doesn't really matter doing the experiment. It wasn't really that important to you in the first place. Or a million other reasons that you justify to yourself why it makes sense to go grab your phone. And to do that experiment is really to get a little bit of a window in what it's like for people who become addicted, obviously, to a much greater degree with much more significant consequences. And again, physiologically, what's happening is we've basically overloaded our reward pathway with dopamine such that the brain has to adapt. By down-regulating our own dopamine production, we enter a dopamine deficit state. And it is that dopamine deficit state that drives us to seek out our drug, again, in order just to restore homeostasis, not, not even to feel good, but to stop feeling bad.
0: Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So how does that differ from what's happening in, let's just say, like a withdrawal state? Like when you're going through withdrawal from uh, your social media usage or from your, you know, your drug of choice, how is that different from what you just described? Or is that a similar mechanism?
1: It's the exact same mechanism, but it can be much more subtle and much more protracted. So acute physical withdrawal tends to last days. This is a phenomenon that can really last weeks or months or in some cases of severe addiction, even years, just because it requires a lot of work on the part of the brain to restore baseline dopamine levels. And this is what we talk about with the protracted abstinence syndrome. You know, why it's it's often very puzzling when we see people with severe addiction who get into recovery, whose lives are going so much better, and then who relapse, seem to relapse out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And to understand what's going on there is it's really necessary to appreciate that those folks are not walking around with a level balance, right? They're walking around with a balance that's chronically tilted to the side of pain. They're in a dopamine deficit state. And so everything is exertion for them. And they're sort of bombarded with these constant intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And it's not that they're indulging themselves when they relapse. It's that they're finally giving in to just a relentless onslaught of cravings and physiologic urges to use.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like you have a beautiful amount of empathy for for people that are experiencing this. What's it like for you to walk around in our in our world and see the world that we live in, see the modern Western culture that we live in through your lens, having been somebody that has researched this and, and worked with addiction so much and and knows So much about it? Like, what's your experience with that?
1: Well, I think my main experience is wanting people to understand where the relentless pursuit of pleasure and comfort leads so that they can, in understanding the neuroscience, really reframe their own goals and experiences, reconceptualize why they might be depressed and anxious, and reconsider some of their coping strategies, which typically lean toward trying to increase comfort, when in mm. fact doing that may be very wrong thing for how to feel better. I will also add that as a parent of teenagers, I'm, I'm worried for my kids growing up in this world. Uh, my kids are exposed to things that I hadn't even heard of, heard of until I was an adult. And I'm both curious and worried to see what they're going to do with all of that access and all of that information. It certainly is a a very strange time to be growing up.
0: I know you talk about different cultures and you give some interesting examples of like how the Greeks dealt with it and, you know, what it looked like in in China and, you know, what it looked like in, in India and just different stories. And so I'm hoping that maybe you can talk a little bit about from what you found how have we culturally throughout history tried to approach addiction? And what's what's been some of the views and maybe what's been the, the most surprising thing? Because, yeah, I'll I'll pause there before I give you more questions.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. One of the big surprises was that we've had drug epidemics for 500 years. That it, we're in the middle of a historic opioid overdose crisis. The level of death is astounding. I mean, it's gone up by tremendous amounts, even within COVID. So now 100,000 people are dying per year and that's not that's only one slice of the addiction problem because people also die from tobacco and alcohol too and we've we've tended as different societies to respond to those addiction epidemics in a variety of different ways and the thing i found really interesting about those responses whether it was the european response to tobacco when it first landed in 1500s, like 1600s, or the first American opioid epidemic, which happened around the time of the Civil War, or the stimulant epidemic we had in, say, like the 1920s, is like in the social responses to those epidemics, we see how people make sense of addiction. That also reflects the individual idea of how people understand drug problems. And also how we go wrong with drug problems. And there's a lot we could say about that. But the the bottom line is we tend to swing between these extremes. That sometimes it's a prohibitionist crackdown. I think, I, you know, it goes along with what we were saying earlier, that there, there's also a tendency for this sort of overwhelming and really harsh self-discipline, like I'm going to cut it out in a way that's not really kind and compassionate toward myself. Or, or we can swing toward an answer that is sometimes too focused on mutual help and neglecting the other sorts of things that uh, are necessary, like medical treatment or like science or like prohibitionism. So, uh, you know, I'm not in favor of like total crackdowns. A, a very crude war on drugs has never really worked. But we do need some common sense regulation, as we've seen in, say, like the runaway tobacco companies or the runaway opioid manufacturers in the 1990s. But a lot of it is finding that golden mean is uh, finding the, the wise middle ground where there's like the right dose of discipline, but also tempered with compassion and wisdom and community and all the rest.
0: Hmm. So in some of the ancient cultures, are you saying that we have kind of historically dealt with addiction in roughly the same way? Like I know in the book you talk about, you know, the Greeks had a word, uh, I think it was philopides. I don't, I'm I'm probably saying it completely wrong, but it was like uh, love of drinking sessions. And then in in Tang Sen, Uh, described a pact that he made with the gods to stop drinking, only to to later get drunk at a banquet. And so like, it's kind of shown up throughout our history, you know? Yeah, so I'd just love for you to speak a little bit to that of what you've seen of how we've been trying to sort of solve this, maybe, I don't know if problem is the right word, but how we've been trying to relate to addiction throughout history, throughout the writing.
2: Yeah, I like that revision how to relate to addiction because in a way it was a bit more flexible in the past Hmm. in several areas uh it's not that we've always responded in the same way but i do think that we've gone through different cycles and we have to be aware of those cycles if we want to step back and have a fuller picture of the situation uh for example about 500 years ago When the word addiction first entered the English language, it was actually a really important concept for early Protestants who were really concerned about discipline, the will, self-control, and how it related to, for them, freedom and salvation. So uh, for them, addiction was not about a condition that happens to you. It wasn't like a status that came over you. It was an action. They recognized Mm -hmm. that uh, people could addict themselves to something. And it wasn't negative only, it was also positive. So you could addict yourself to bad things like the wrong sort of prayer, even necromancy or black magic. But you could also, you could addict yourself to positive pursuits, like study or uh, self-development in other ways. And I, I really like that conception. And in a way that mirrors other ways people have understood this problem of addiction throughout time. And it's really only recently that it's gotten narrowed to a very small slice of human behavior, it's meant to mean the farthest extremes of a particular type of problem and just substances and not, not this mm-hmm. sort of broader conception of all the other ways we might we might like devote ourselves to a thing and then in the process lose our freedom. It's like willfully giving up your will.
0: I mean, you use the word devote there and I think it's interesting because in some ways there is a devotionary aspect to addiction, you know, that there is... Like David Foster Wallace talks about how everybody worships something, right? Whether they admit to it or not, it's like we are worshiping creatures in some capacity. And it would seem as though there is an element of devotion that comes into addiction. I'm I'm curious if you agree with that, and if that has sort of shown up, uh, you know, within your within your research.
2: Absolutely, you know, The word devotion came to my mind because I was thinking about a book by this great English scholar Rebecca Lemon, who wrote a book. Addiction and devotion in early modern England. Early modern meaning like 1500 to 1700 roughly. And that's the way it was understood. It was a strong devotion. It was a particular type of strong devotion that impinged on people's voluntary behavior. It was a voluntary behavior that you did that then took away your voluntariness and impaired your own freedom. Hmm. Uh, But, you know, absolutely. It's not, I think we lose a lot if we think of addiction as something that just happens to us. Because throughout time, people have recognized that addiction is really universal. The concept underlying it are, are things that everyone shares. That's my experience with working with patients. Uh, the same self-control problems that people have in severe cases of addiction are essentially the same as people who struggle with work or with sex or with money or with status or external validation or gambling or whatever. It's a, it's a severe matter of degree but it's not a difference in kind. It's not like there's a totally different kind of mode of existence. That's my view at least. Interesting.
0: And so you you mentioned that the word addiction really only came into our usage like 500 years ago. So when you look back before that, how did people label, how did people identify addiction? Like what were some of the cultural terms? And I think the other piece is how were people who were viewed or perceived to be? I'll oh, we'll just use the word addicts because that's what we use. How were they treated socially? Because I think uh, I'd like to better understand, like you know, how did people a thousand, two thousand years ago identify these people? How did they treat them? And and have we shifted at all? <laughs> Although I'm sure that it ebbs and flows throughout time. But yeah, let's let's explore that a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's a really important question because what I call addiction and what you call addiction. Might not even be the same as what somebody called it addiction 100 years ago Hmm. or 200 years ago, let alone what people called addiction before addiction had a name. And and what I mean by that is uh, I do think there's something real there. I I got tremendous identification when I saw these stories like from 1000 BC, somebody with gambling addiction in the Hindu Rig Veda or... Hmm. Uh, like you mentioned, the, the Chinese poet uh, a couple thousand years later who struggled with drinking and then couldn't stop. So I think there's a there there. I think I really think, and, you know, maybe that sounds stupid to some people <laughs> because the, anybody who struggled with addiction in their life uh, has a real sense that this is something urgent and life-threatening and important. But yeah, I, sometimes when people talk about these concepts, it's almost as if, you know, it's an idea or it's a social construct or it's not really real. Uh, so I feel it's important to say that. Uh, and at the same time, what we think about addiction is so strongly influenced by our cultural and social background, these like legacies of our ancestors, whether it's just our parents or family of origin, or whether it goes back deeper and deeper. And that's part of what I was trying to get at in the book is what is that cultural and historical baggage that we carry around with us regarding self control? How does it help us? How does it hurt us? And, um, So you were asking about how people make sense of addiction before addiction had a name. I like Aristotle. We were talking about him before, so I guess my mind is going there. But uh, Aristotle had this one particular way of describing self-control problems that uh, I think is akrasia. You talk, you know, Greek pronunciation. It's all Greek to me. I've heard philosophers say it in different ways. But akrasia was something really special for him. It's often translated as weakness of the will or another translation is incontinence, which I think is a really nice evocative statement where, uh, you do something that you don't want to do, even knowing that it's not the best option for you. So it's not like, it's not like doing something and then regretting it later. It means like with your eyes wide open, with the full knowledge in the moment that, uh, this is not the right path that it's harming you. You still go through and do it. And, uh, you know, one example is I might make the resolution. And many times I did make the resolution when I was drinking. Tonight's a night. I'm not gonna drink tonight. I really need to start cutting down. I know I can get a handle on this. Maybe I can prove to myself that I can I can walk it back on my own. And that intention is very clear in the morning, at midday, in the afternoon when I'm coming home from work. And then Almost as if I'm watching myself do it when I get lonely or when I get stressed or when I just have a craving, I, I watch myself walking out the door, down to the corner store, buy the drink, and even knowing and saying to myself, this is not really what I want to be doing and it's going to wind up harming me. I still drink the drink. And I, I think people have that experience with, with food and with money and with all the other stuff that we talked about before. Um, but it's a really beautiful model because it includes choice. It doesn't mean that addiction is a choice. But it doesn't mean that people are doing a bad thing by choice. It just means that there's like some way that choice gets askew, the choice gets disordered, uh, and it's not that all or nothing binary we were talking about before.
0: You know, I think what's interesting, I think what I hear you saying is is that self control and our perception of self control has been really at the the sort of center of this exploration around addiction for thousands of years, right? Whether it's Aristotle you know, whether it's in China, whether it's in India, whether, you know, it's in modern day North America, is it about how we relate to self-control? Is it about our perceptions of how much we should have control over ourselves? You know, or or is part of it about how we shame ourselves for not having control or like, you know, maybe fetishizing in a way, I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm going to use it, fetishizing the being out of control, you know because I think about my own history with addictive behaviors and there was almost something unspeakably alluring about not having control. you know I think there were, that was just part of the cycle. Later on I would shame myself for not having control over what I wanted in that moment. but there was something almost appealing about like, oh I, I can't control this this part of me or I can't control this behavior. And so I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on all that.
2: Yeah, Connor, I really identify with that. I, I personally really identify with what you're saying. Where I I had this sense that I was almost revolting against my own harsh inner disciplinarian, and mm. I was so tight and so focused on getting ahead or mastering myself that it was suffocating. And then sometimes I had to revolt against that self control. By finding some sense of release or connection or just a more like easygoing friendliness in social situations, that was definitely a part of my whole addictive pattern for sure. And I think it's good to identify that uh, our ideas about self-control can sometimes be really harmful and really influence the way that we think about addiction. It's a big part of the American story, actually. Mm -hmm. A lot of my book takes place in North America. That's partly because it's a book for me trying to make sense of what happened to me and my family. And so I look to my own legacy, but it's also because addiction has a particularly rich history in the United States. And United States doctors and thinkers were in many ways the originators of some of the key addiction concepts. And there's some thought, there's some speculation this might be an unsolvable historical riddle because it's about sociology hundreds of years ago. But there's some thought that the addiction is a particularly modern American phenomenon, Mm. where uh, the United States is so bound up in these ideas about individualism and self-reliance and discipline, um, going all the way back to the colonial times when like, salvation, you could prove that you were worthy through your own like self-discipline and good works. And then of course this notion of like a self-made man proving yourself without assistance, the sort of like cowboy ideal. And if people are really invested in that notion, they might be more vulnerable to addiction. They might be more vulnerable to this uh this sort of like isolation and the 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 pendular swing between too harsh discipline and then just like the 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 urgent searching for release and escape from all of that for sure.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting cuz I think about media I've consumed from other cultures. Like I'm a big I love Japanese culture and so I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole in a lot of like those old samurai movies and um you know, studying and 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 all those different components and it it does seem as though the individuals who have had some form of addiction or at least the portrayal of the people that have had some form of addiction are Maybe few and far between as we go back, you know further further back, but it almost always is related to from my from my perspective somebody that has lost a sense of of meaning within their lives, somebody that has lost a sense of communal belonging, and somebody that has maybe disconnected from uh, a spiritual undercurrent within their life that they had before. You know, so like, you know, this this sort of classic samurai losing his master and sort of losing purpose and function and, you know, losing his way and then turning to the bottle and that becomes the new master and etc. And then having to overcome that. But that does seem to be something that has played out through throughout history. I'm curious if I'm curious to just circle back on this notion of how we have treated people uh, with addiction and if there's any sort of ties between how we have you know because we we have an interesting relationship with our modern culture with people that have addiction and there's many different camps i think to how people treat them right there's ostracization there's sort of outcasts like well they should just get it together there's uh you know wanting to sort of swing in and save them and and be the hero in that person's story You know, there's many different avenues that people try and take within our modern culture. And I'm curious if there's any sort of historical precedence in that, like if that's something that we've tried to do, or if that's sort of a new thing that we're creating all this infrastructure around trying to support people that that are struggling with addiction.
2: It's a relatively newer innovation in historical time, at least, Mm -hmm. that we divide up people according to good drugs and bad drugs. Mm. Uh, Because people use drugs for reasons. As long as we've had human societies, we've sought out ways of using drugs. But a lot of our current drug policy and our stigmatized views about drugs come out of these massive drug panics, at least since the 19th century, when people got freaked out about Chinese immigrants and opium. Mm. And so there's a big scare about that. People got freaked out after the Civil War about uh, black people and supposed associations with violence, with cocaine use, even though everybody was using cocaine at that time. You know, it, like, um, white mine workers in West Virginia were using cocaine too, but it was the the black dangerousness myth that really kicked up fears about cocaine. And then, even among my own ancestors, European ancestors who came to the Northeast, the the poor urban underclass sparked a huge sort of moral panic. In and of themselves this is the origin of sort of like the skid row archetype of like the dangerous seedy underworld and um those fears got attached to heroin which is a new drug around that time mm-hmm. and um there's a really strong and concerted effort to divide people up by good drugs and bad drugs in american society especially we seriously over invested in the notion that certain drugs are dangerous invaders they have to be defeated at all costs they're definitely negative, and they're going to take you over like some sort of possessing, invading force. And that's really a really dangerous notion because it comes back to bite us all. It re- really rebounds to, to harm everyone because while we're villainizing certain drugs, which in itself doesn't do anything to help, it uh, can even be a weapon for oppressing other people, um, it also blinds us to the supposedly good drugs and that's happened over and over and over again. I mentioned just briefly that there was a, a, a stimulant epidemic uh, around the time they were invented. I mean, this uh, uh, synthetic stimulants like methamphetamine came about in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And because they, they work in a different way and they seem different than, say, opiates and cocaine, the pharmaceutical companies were able to sell these narratives saying these things aren't really addictive because real addiction is this thing over there that's associated with Chinese and black people. And that caused tremendous harm across the whole spectrum to the, you know, to the privileged, to the um, to the marginalized. So, you know, I, I, drugs and drug policy can be really polarizing. But the, the one important message about that is that drug, you know, drug use is not necessarily problematic for everyone. I think we've come to associate certain drugs with sort of like automatic instantaneous addiction. And it just doesn't work that way.
0: You know, I think it's the allure of spiritual philosophical frameworks like Zen to most people, you know, is that you're going, you're accessing some secret and this is maybe a sort of mundane example, but, you know, I remember watching Kung Fu Panda the first time and, you know, he gets to the point where he gets the scroll and then the, the scroll has nothing on it. It's just a golden mirror that reflects back his image. And he, he's very disappointed. And he goes back and he has a conversation with his father, who's a, a duck. And the more I talk about this example, the more I'm like, this sounds so childish. But but <laughs> the, the, he goes back to make soup and take over his father's uh, noodle business. His father has a noodle soup business. And and there's a secret to his father's noodle soup. And his father finally discloses the secret, which is that there's no secret ingredient. Yeah, yes. And it's sort of this epiphany moment where he realizes that the mirror reflecting back his image is that he already is, you know, it, you know, he's already a part yes, of exactly. everything. He already has the secret within him, et cetera. And so it is it is interesting because I think our ego needs a kind of hook to bring us in. And I think that the Western ideology of enlightenment is that hook, you know, this notion that you're going to get this sort of a luminous understanding of the cosmos and all of her secrets will be revealed to you, which I think is certainly a part of it. Yes. Um, and then, yeah. So can, can you just comment on that? Maybe uh, just sort of take that and run with it.
3: Yeah, I think that's very well put. Very, you speak beautifully, actually, Connor. Very thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's just lovely listening listen to you. And thank you. I mean, you're right on. I totally agree. I suppose the, the Zen view would be, or, if I can speak to that, I don't even know. One way of looking at it from a Zen perspective is that there is something sort of special to be discovered, but it's only special in the sense that we just don't normally see it it's not special in the sense that it's some, you know, remote and spectacular accomplishment because it's already here. What, what, what you know, all these almost corny spiritual paradoxes are true, that what we're looking for is totally already here. So, so a great teacher, a great figure like the Buddha, you know, all he could do was help people find something that they already had same is true today with any no you know no matter the guru or the spiritual methodology or the app you're listening to you know if it's a meditation app all they're really guiding us to is something that you could say we already have or you might better say we already are but we're just really unaccustomed to noticing it we're we're very strongly habituated conditioned both by our culture but also by ourselves you know we We do our own conditioning as well as, of course, external events will encourage us to condition ourselves certain ways, of course. But really, it's us that obscures what I would say it's fair to say we most want. I think we humans long for nothing so much as peace and happiness, a sense of belovedness and loving. Mm And that's what this central Zen, you know, awakening insight thing gives. It gives this sense, it gives all the above that we discover all along. We have been kind of maximally loved, you know, without having to lift a finger. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's not to do with that. We, you know, from the point of view of what Zen calls original nature, you know, there is no need to deserve it. It's it's automatic, you know, and. We're all, you know, we're all basically bathing in it right now, but it's not that easy to be aware of it simply because of conditioned ways of experiencing. So it sort of is a bit special in some
0: ways, but it also definitely isn't in other
3: ways. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, no. I was just going to say, I think that's, I think that's great. I, I want to just sort of come back to a little bit of the basics, so that we can then traverse, hopefully, into some of the the deep end, um, of the pool, as it as it were. So, why Zen for you? What what drew you towards it? What was your experience? Um, because I, I think that that is kind of interesting, based off of what I've read and what I know about you.
3: Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean. I think in part it's what we were already talking about that as a as a teenager I was reading basically zen poetry I didn't really know it was zen I just knew it was fantastic poetry that I loved you know by those old chan or zen masters from from China then I I guess yeah I was like reading you know reading the dharma bums by Kerouac he was talking about zen a lot in that so I started picking up this zen thing and then actually if I could um talk a little personally on this. I had a sudden moment of the rending of the veil, you know, out of the blue when I was 19. I actually, funny enough, in spite of being into all that poetry, I hadn't realized then that there was something to be seen that I wasn't already seeing. I sort of hadn't picked up that side of Zen because most of the poetry that I was tuning into by the Zen, old Zen is, was more about Missing old friends and having sad partings from loved ones and wandering the hills and valleys and gorges alone, and sitting on in the high mountains with clouds and stuff. It was more, there wasn't really direct mention of the Zen experience of awakening. And so, I, so it really wasn't actually on my radar. But suddenly, when I was 19, out of the blue, I happened to have a really Quite strong, revelatory sort of moment out of nowhere that that really turned my world upside down because I had no idea what it was, but I, I knew I'd I'd suddenly sort of discovered the truth of life or something. It's what it felt like, and you know, and it just it just came out of nowhere. And probably, I mean, if that hadn't happened, I mean, who knows? But if it hadn't happened, I might have been a person who would have remained very sceptical of this kind of talk, you know, about awakening, enlightenment something called original nature, I probably would have, because I was basically more of a sort of literary kind of guy, or at least as, aspiring to be that, aspiring from a young age to be a writer and a poet. And I wasn't really, you know, didn't really sort of have an interest in anything like sort of spirituality or mysticism. Or, I wasn't interested in that. I was more interested in, you know, kind of really living fully and, and writing and poetry, which I love to read as well as write but this thing happened and it was very, uh, wonderful, utterly wonderful for several weeks. And then it was really difficult because I, would actually been away, been working away far away from home when it happened. And I went home and I was just, uh, overwhelmed by all the unexamined misery and trauma of my childhood, which I just hadn't reckoned with as a child that I'd, I'd sort of totally compartmentalized it and buried it really and tried to just manage to keep going sort of thing. But when I came home, having had this experience, I was so open and so sort of uh, sensitive to life that as soon as I came home, it kind of uh, swamped me, this, this old unhappiness that had gone unrecognized for so long. And now I could see it, and, and it was I just had no I had no means of handling it. It came so suddenly and so thoroughly it really overwhelmed me and I, I I tumbled into a kind of despair that actually you know bit by bit, I started to work my way out of but over years and it was only in my mid twenty when i was twenty four I started meditating, and then almost immediately started therapy there were really amazing therapists and some friends of mine. Young, we, he had a little group of sort of 20 tw- people in their 20s. And I've had a long sort of journey of healing and trying to sort of reckon with the trauma of my early years, which was long and sustained and very difficult, really. And so, can you
0: can you go back and just maybe give some context for the experience itself? Because I feel like that might just serve for. The just what we're pointing towards, I think might I think it might help the listener.
3: Yeah, on the well, on the trauma side, I mean, I was left alone by my mother when I was six months old for ten days, and that was the way she weaned me. And when she came back, this this is all all that I know. When she came back, I was totally covered from cranium to sole to my feet in very bad eczema, which is like a you know a skin uh, skin affliction and i mean i went to hospital repeatedly as a as a young child for stretches of time with with impetigo when the eczema would get infected and it was really nasty and it lasted actually into my 20s i mean gradually less severely but it was it was very you know it was really a chronic thing and profoundly uncomfortable because it wasn't just like a rash you know it was all over my body it was sometimes it was it was it was, it, it was pretty disfiguring and it was it was excruciating, you know, with pain and itch, basically, with insane amounts of itching and and pain and bleeding, and uh, it was it was really quite nasty. And so there was that. There was also some, you know, really uh, dysfunctional household, family things, painful family breakup and remarriage, and yeah, like I said, I was sort of somehow I, I got through it by just sort of in a, in in a semi denial, semi-numbness, some dissociation, I think, and through childhood, you know, because I was fairly high functioning, at least academically, I was very motivated. Then after this time away, when actually I was free of eczema, working abroad and then backpacking, then I came home and the eczema actually came right back. (laughs) But I also had this sort of psychological sort of collapse and slowly sort of pick my way out of it.
0: The experience that you, because I think what's what's good is you're creating the, you know, you're giving a sense of like what the pain was that you were going through. And I think what you described is how most of us deal with that childhood pain that we experience, whether it's through divorce or abuse or neglect or or whatever. And I think that it's, I mean, it's incredible how resilient children are. You know, yes. when they don't necessarily, no one's told them that they need to be that way or that they have to act a certain way or that they have to face that discomfort a certain way. But it seems to be hardwired in us from a very young age of like, you just survive yes. and that we, we sort of come out and we we realize at that an almost, I think Jung would probably say at an unconscious level, or at a collective unconscious level, that there's this part of us that knows that it just has to survive. Uh, and so we get by, but the body metabolizes that pain in some way, shape or form. I'm curious as to how your experience when you were 19, this sort of, I don't know if you would refer to it as an awakening experience or a liberation experience or how you necessarily define it, whether or not it needs terminology, I don't know. But if you can give some context to that and what it did to your relationship to that that suffering in your upbringing.
3: God, yeah. Okay. Happily. I mean, I was actually, I was at the time I was all alone on a beach and I was looking at the sun getting low in the sky right before setting. And uh, I mean, this is, this is a literal context for it, you know, and I was just studying the, the light on the water and when, when I could, you know, for little periods of time and because it was very, very bright. And um, I just was pondering, well, wait a minute, the water is basically transparent and air is transparent. And what I'm seeing is simply this surface where one transparent body meets another transparent body. And all that's happening is light is bouncing off it and the light's moving and it's like light is incredibly bright. But at the same time, among all these sort of scales of very bright light, the water seems really black, actually. So it's black and it's white and it's white. what's going on. And all of a sudden, while I was just pondering this, I guess poet style, you know, pondering the puddle kind of thing, <laughs> except in this case, it was the ocean, I suddenly it just sort of switched and, and what I was looking at wasn't outside me. I was totally, it was just one enveloping thing, you know, there's no words for it really, sort of one dream, one mind, one body, all, the whole scene outside me was me and I was it and there was just no way of kind of separating, there was no separation between I who was looking at it and it that it was being looked at. We were just one thing, and when I when that showed itself, then it suddenly was as if there really was hardly anything here at all except this kind of sort of it was like a sort of field of shifting sparks, really is what it was like but i'm I'm, I'm just I'm telling you very frankly what it was like, but there was no distance, there was no time, there was no it was just one 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 one, and incredibly beautiful, and it was a fairly powerful sort of maybe not exactly just one flash it was a little longer than that but it wasn't long but it had a really long aftermath when you know I sort of at some point I kind of knew again that I was a human being standing on the sand and but filled with this sense of love and and above all belonging it seemed like I'd discovered or somehow it had been revealed in that moment that I didn't just belong. I, I was just inseparable from the fabric of all things. Is what it felt like. So belonging had been a kind of issue for me through my childhood because, ah, uh, you know, sort of at odds with the, the various households I was part of at different times. Uncomfortable, obviously, in my own skin, and then also there was a there was a sort of a little bit of a racial factor because I was Jewish in a culture, namely 1970s UK that was sort of not really very openly anti-Semitic, but it had a sort of undercurrent of semi-hidden anti-Semitism that sometimes wasn't so hidden, you know. And so actually the first racial identity I realized I had was really when somebody identified me as a Jew in a kind of negative pejorative way. I don't want to go too much into the weeds. I had actually been brought up basically without any Judaism. My dad was a an atheist and and we weren't we weren't really practicing or even sort of very it, it really wasn't part of our identity in my early years actually until it sort of started to be impressed on me from outside so anyway that that gave a sense of like another layer of sort of not really knowing the feeling of belonging and then this experience happened where wow this is like a unconditional belonging and it was they were so so beautiful and and then that was another thing that was sort of, you know, I felt sort of, I was bereft of when I came home. I suddenly felt i spiraled into a kind of
0: deeply shame-based isolation, hmm. you know. You know, just the experience that you describe, I think is is interesting. I had a very similar moment when I was 20 or 21 in Italy and had this sort of, collapse or radical expansion of either one I guess you could say either one but of consciousness looking out over olive fields that just as far as I could see and I couldn't see I you know just and all at once it just sort of collapsed and I could feel at one with it you know as if they were looking back at you know as if I was looking back at myself through the olive orchard that just spanned for thousands of acres and miles as far as I could see and And the way you describe it is very, I mean, it's almost identical, you know, and I've had a couple other experiences like that where it's hard to put it into words. You know, it's very hard to describe what it is. Mm -hmm, And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the experience. Maybe let's just go down the path of Zen. Let's just let's just take a turn into that before before (laughs) I go too far (laughs) down. I want to go down that path. But but okay. But hey,
3: hey, I mean, let's go down that Let's go where you want to go.
0: Well, I was. It, gonna, might, it might steer us to Zen anyway. I was going to ask: is you know, is that would that constitute as a kind of satori moment? Like I think in, I've heard that you that word used quite a few times, and heard people talk about it. And this sort of sudden awakening that happens in a moment that doesn't necessarily that permeates our being, but maybe doesn't necessarily keep us there for an elongated period of time and i asked that question specifically because i've noticed within myself and i've noticed within a lot of people who are spiritual but don't identify within a religious context that there's this predilection towards chasing satori and our culture chasing our our culture chasing these moments of enlightenment through ayahuasca or mushrooms or Vipassana meditations or, you know, something where Mm -hmm. people have a moment and they're trying to get back to that experience because it is so blissful and beautiful. And I know I've caught myself in that and I know I've certainly heard it within the culture. And so I was curious, would you describe that as a Satori moment or how would you describe a Satori and then what are your thoughts on this sort of draw towards or our, our desire towards trying to come back into those moments of sort of bliss and oneness and, and, and the connection with everything? So just a small question, and right, maybe yeah. three questions <laughs> <Yes>. in one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see what I can do. I think it's terribly
3: important. You know, I really do. Uh, all, all aspects of what you were just asking. Let me see what I can how I can just parse it out a little bit, how I would see it. The first thing would say, yes, basically there's another word that's commonly used in Zen as well than Satori, which is kensho, which in some ways is is a clearer word to use. It means seeing original nature, literally. And it, it does indeed mean something like what we've both apparently undergone in our in our youth. You know, that's a very beautiful description of the Olive's orchard looking back at you with the orchard looking back at yourself. I I, I know what you're talking about. It's very wonderful. And yes, indeed, I think that would be, these would qualify as Kensho. Now, Satori is a slightly more complex term in the sense that it can be, sometimes it's used synonymously with Kensho and sometimes it's used as a label for actually what is perhaps a deeper kind of experience that can also happen after usually long Zen training kind of thing. And that has other names as well, that deeper kind of experience. And the reason it's deeper is only in the sense that, you know, the Kensho, or or sometimes also called Satori, in one sense Satori is used, you know, it is basically temporary. It sort of happens, and then it sort of recedes and of course it leaves a most important impression and it it you know it's shown us something and um that we had not thought of before or heard it maybe we've heard of something like that before but it's nothing like seeing it for ourselves or experiencing it for ourselves there's no compensation for that that's the only the only way to know it is to find you are it and we do in those moments and then it tends to recede and the the you know the habitual ways of experiencing, you know, come back, and that's quite natural and normal, and and it can leave us with a longing to sort of go back there. But I think in part not only the sort of the you know the euphoria of it, yes, but also I would say, I mean, in my own case, I think what was really left me so bewildered was that I knew it was true. I knew that in some way. This wasn't just a kind of optional, other, nicer way of experiencing things. It was closer to reality.
0: I I think one of the things that I really appreciate is that you do bring things back to an experiential nature. And in a time where we are so riddled with and consumed by the addiction to thinking, Which takes us out of experience, which takes us away, uh, arguably further away from awareness itself, this nature of being that you're talking about, away from consciousness. Yes. appreciate the the sort of relentlessness of pulling things back to that experiential aspect and element.
4: Yes. I'm not against thinking, as you know. Um, I like thinking. I think thought is a is a beautiful instrument. But I like to to think. I like to to build it. Um, I want to build a model of reality with, with with thoughts. I want to base it on something that is true in experience. Otherwise, otherwise we could just pluck any theory. If we do not demand that our models of reality. Are grounded in experience, then any theory will do.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. So I, I love thinking, but thinking, in my opinion, should, should serve experience and come from experience and actually lead us to our actual experience. Because most of us, we perceive the world. Yeah. Our, our experience is filtered through the overlay of conceptual thought. So we don't really experience reality as it is. We experience reality as it is filtered through our faculties of thinking and perceiving. So the purpose of thinking, at least in this context, in the context that we're speaking, would be to probe deeply into what is true of our experience and to help us to experience reality in a way that is that is true. And then the, the, the primary, the fundamental fact about reality, uh, I would suggest is, is that it is one. There is one infinite indivisible reality and all people, all animals and all things derive their apparently independent existence from that single reality. In, in other words, we are, we are one. Take what's going on in the world today, politically, socially, Ecologically, all the challenges, or, or many of the challenges we, we face, uh, are brought about by human activity, which is based upon the belief that we are separate. We are separate from one another, we are separate from animals, and we are separate from the earth. And as soon as we believe we are separate from another person, another animal, or the environment, we can behave, we can treat that person or or that environment in a way that has no consequences for ourselves, because they are separate from us. Cruelty, unkindness, exploitation, injustice, all, all these, violence, hatred, all these are only possible if we think the other is is other. As soon as we have this felt understanding that the other is really myself, the universe is myself. All animals are myself. That understanding alone compels us to, to act and behave in, 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 a, in a certain way. So this, this understanding has, has profound implications for our society, for us individually, but also in terms of our internal happiness, but also in, in terms of our relationships with each other and with the, with the earth, with nature well
0: well said and i I feel like what you're saying in the and the map of meaning or how we structure reality as as you're saying that vantage point the the way in which we structure reality then dictates how we interact with it as so if we're othering other people right I think it's I don't remember where I heard this, but it was something about how the most damaging myth that we have is the myth of separation yes. and that as a human species, that we, when we allow that myth of separation to become a sort of cornerstone of our belief systems and how we operate, that it is catastrophic. And so I
4: believe that what you're saying is that myth is exactly that. It's a myth. It's exactly, Connor. One, it is a myth. And the consequences of this myth, the consequences of the paradigm of materialism are the inevitable consequences are twofold. One, unhappiness on the inside, and two, conflict on the outside. Conflict with uh, between people and animals and the exploitation and degradation of the earth. These are the inevitable consequences of the materialistic paradigm, the, the, the paradigm of separation. Unhappiness on the inside, conflict on the outside. And by contrast, the inevitable consequence of the non-dual understanding is peace and happiness on the inside, and love and beauty on the outside. But by love and beauty, I mean the recognition that 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 we are one, that we share our being with everyone and everything.
0: Yeah, it is in some ways our work, our challenge, our confrontation to, and, and this is just my my experience, like the, to move back towards that. Version of reality, that non-dual version of reality, where there is no other, because it is so easy to create that objectification. You know, to objectify someone who who believes differently or thinks differently, et cetera. And so, I know that we're close on time here, and I feel like I I could selfishly speak with you for an entire day and not come away with uh, without more questions and and comments. And I really love this dialogue, and so. I'm wondering if you can speak to that because I hear you sort of saying that this practice and there's, I'm actually going to bring one of your own quotes into the fray here and, and I'll just let you wrap up as you see fit. But in the meditation retreat that I took part in with you, you said prayer is an act of returning to the empty sanctuary of the heart. And there was something about that, almost invitation, you know, invitation, that felt so potent for our current time where we are, we have become a culture that is just drenched in separation and mired by our propensity to objectify other people. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that you can just speak to how we move more directly towards the, not the elimination of that objectification, but the the return to our, our natural being as we started off this conversation. Just- yes.
4: Yes, prayer is this movement, this return to the empty sanctuary of the heart, prayer or meditation or contemplation. By the empty sanctuary of the heart, I mean our our naked, uncolored being, just the fact of being aware before our being is colored or qualified or conditioned by experience, just naked, self-aware being. And that experience, that non-objective experience is the same for everyone. Everyone's thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions are different, but the fact of being aware is identical for everyone. It is our essential nature and it shares none of the limited qualities of objective experience. It has no, there is no sense of lack in it and thus its nature is joy. There is no agitation, in it. thus its nature is peace. And I, I would suggest that it is the, that we as individuals emerge out of the universe. So the fundamental nature of ourself must be the same as the fundamental nature of the universe for the same reason that the nature of the wave is the same as the nature of the ocean. So the essential nature of what we are, just infinite self aware being is, I would suggest the same as the nature of the universe so this recognition that this return to the empty sanctuary of the heart we return to our naked being and we first discover its nature as peace and joy that that the peace that passeth all understanding but then the more deeply we go into it we realize that this being is the being that we share with everyone and everything and this takes us out of the privacy of our own heart, out into the world, and we realize that that the, the being we are is is shared with everyone. The recognition of our shared being is the experience of love or beauty. So these two aspects: that the inner recognition of our being as peace and happiness, and the recognition that we share our being with everyone and everything. The experience of of love or beauty. These are the two hallmarks, really, of the un, of the non-dual understanding. And you talked just a few minutes ago about purpose, and I would say that one's purpose could be framed in reference to these two essential understandings: that, that, are, that are an inner purpose, where our, our purpose is to to rediscover our essential being and its innate joy. That that is our everybody's inner purpose: to, to return to the empty sanctuary of the heart, to recognize or to know again their own being with its innate peace and joy. But then we also have a purpose which relates to the second aspect of the non-dual understanding, namely that we share our being with everyone and everything. And that second outer purpose, so to speak, would be to bring this understanding out into the world, to share it in the world in some way. And it might be uh, what I'm doing, speaking and writing, and it might be what you're doing, holding interviews and podcasts. And there are, there are, Numerous other ways where this understanding can be communicated in, in the world. So uh, I think these are our two, the two tasks to discover the nature of our own being and then to share that discovery in one way or another with humanity.